Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're going through a chapter that is documenting the escalating tensions as the state tries to use a reformist solution to settle things, and it doesn't seem to be working. So let's get started. Revolution in the Village Few peasants mourned the passing of the Romanov dynasty, footnote 55. They drew up thousands of resolutions to greet the arrival of the democratic order, to applaud the fact that they were now citizens of a free Russia, and to demand that the entire social and political order be reconstructed on the basis of self-government at the lowest possible level. Land captains, township elders, village policemen were driven out and replaced by township committees elected by the peasants. The provisional government hoped to make its writ run via these committees. By July, they existed in most of the country's 15,000 townships. But they were very much under the control of the peasants themselves. Later, some rebranded themselves as Soviets. The revolution strengthened the authority of the village gathering, democratizing it by allowing younger sons, landless laborers, village intelligentsia, scribes, teachers, vets, and doctors, and some women to participate in the affairs of the community. The level of political awareness of the peasantry remained limited, and socialist parties and labor organizations busied themselves sending agitators and literature into the villages. Among the myriad pamphlets produced was the Ten Commandments of the Russian Citizen. In unity as strength, respect your fellow man, maintain order, do not forget the war. The Petrograd Soviet of peasant deputies, established on the 14th of April by soldiers in the garrison, sent 3,000 agitators into the countryside, and workers in the capital raised 65,000 rubles to pay for agitational literature. Soldiers returning from the front were a key conduit through which radical political ideas passed into the countryside. The key issues for the peasants were war and land, but the first issue that brought villagers into conflict with the government was neither war nor land, but that of food. Footnote 56. Worryingly for the army and civilian consumers, only one-sixth of the harvest was now being sold on the market, compared with one quarter before the war. The new government responded by introducing a state monopoly on grain, but its attempts to force peasants to sell their grain at fixed prices provoked them to conceal stocks or turn it into alcohol. In Ayashevka village in Tambov County, a food supply official was, quote, dressed in a woman's skirt. A bag adorned with 30 ruble banknotes was placed over his head, and a spade thrust in his hands, to which was attached an inscription. For 30 pieces of silver, he sold our freedom. End quote. Footnote 57. Nevertheless, as the new harvest came in, there was still little sense that by the winter an enormous food crisis would be looming, especially in Petrograd. Peasants expected that the overthrow of the autocracy would mean that the estates of the gentry, crown, and church would finally pass into their hands. From late spring, a struggle against the landed nobility quietly got underway. 
Initially, peasants were cautious, testing the capacity of local authorities to curb any illegal action. They unilaterally reduced or failed to pay rent, grazed cattle illegally on the landowner's estate, stole wood from his forests, and, increasingly, took over uncultivated tracts of gentry land on the pretext that it would otherwise remain unsown. In the non-black earth zone, where dairy and livestock farming were the mainstays of the agricultural economy, peasants concentrated on getting their hands on meadow land and pasture. Seeing the inability of local commissars to stop these illegal actions, the number of disturbances began to increase, leveling off during harvest time from mid-July to mid-August, but climbing sharply from September. By autumn, the movement to seize gentry land was in full swing, especially in Ukraine. Peasants were seizing land, equipment, and livestock, and redistributing it among themselves. Generally, the village gathering took the initiative, but returning soldiers were a disruptive and disorderly element who spurred their communities into action. In Borisov County in Minsk, just behind the positions of the Third Army, quote, Six healthy young men dressed in army greatcoats came into our village on three carts. They called us together. Get ready, lads, harness your horses. Let's go and sack the estate of Landlord L. End quote. Footnote 58. The intensity of the agrarian movement varied by region, but the main battlegrounds were the overcrowded central Black Earth and Middle Volga regions. In a province such as Voronezh, Landowners and private peasant proprietors only owned about one-fifth of arable land. Yet widespread land hunger meant that peasants cast greedy eyes upon their estates. In Belarusia, where there was less pressure on arable land, peasant protest was intense mainly because grazing land and timber were in short supply. There, gentry estates were more numerous than in Voronezh, but smaller in size and run on more commercial lines. By contrast, in the northern, non-black soil province of Tver, there was little unrest, since for many decades peasants had been forced by poor soil and climate to migrate in search of wage work. The government nationalized the lands belonging to the imperial family, but it had no enthusiasm for tackling the land question while the war was ongoing knowing that it was likely to encourage desertion in the armed forces. As an earnest display of its seriousness, however, and to prepare a land reform in detail, the government set up a rather bureaucratic structure of land committees at provincial, county, and township levels, topped by a main land committee. Its proceedings proved laborious, and the committees at township level were taken over by restive peasants. The cadet ministers, and Prince Lvov, resisted any concessions to the peasantry, insisting that landlords, and the banks to which much of their land was mortgaged, be fully compensated for any land compulsorily taken from them. For its part, the Union of Landowners and Farmers accused the government of failing to defend the rights of private property and of giving in to anarchy. And though the government did send troops into some of the most volatile provinces, it had little effect in quelling the growing insurgency. Footnote 59. Viktor Chernov, towering leader of the SRs, 
was the one socialist minister in the coalition with a critical portfolio, having been appointed Minister of Agriculture in May. He rejected the demand of his cadet colleagues that landowners be compensated for land that was taken from them, but his hope was to see an orderly transfer of land through the land committees. Over July and August, several thousand members of land committees were arrested for illegal land seizures. But this was a drop in the ocean. In the countryside, a revolution was underway. One of the first acts of the Bolshevik government was to issue a decree on land. This simply recognized what was taking place, namely, a massive and spontaneous movement to seize landed estates. Footnote 60. Although the gentry were the overwhelming targets, during the winter, internal conflict within the peasant community appeared, as peasants who had taken advantage of the Stolypin reforms to separate from the commune also found their land being snatched. This was especially evident in the Black Earth provinces. In the Baltic, Belarusia, and in parts of Ukraine, where capitalist farming existed, agricultural laborers formed unions, just as Lenin had urged in the April Theses. Overall, the movement was fairly organized, since the paramount aim was to cultivate the land that was being seized. But by late 1917, the sacking of manors and burning of symbols of aristocratic privilege, such as pianos, became more widespread. In December, it was reported from Korsunsky County in Simbursk, quote, On the estate of Arapov, in the village of Marianovka, there was a riot and spontaneous seizures beginning on the 15th of November. They divided everything in two, half going to Marianovka and half to the two communities of Fedorovka and Beritsnyakov. All three communities auctioned off livestock, inventory, and buildings, but domestic property was sacked. The money raised was divided equally according to the number of mats to feed in each household. End quote. Footnote 61. The movement was largely spontaneous and largely local, but peasants knew that in order to legalize their hold on the land, they would have to participate in the Constituent Assembly election. And so most duly voted for the party they considered to be the party of the peasantry, namely the SRs. The Nationalist Challenge. The First World War had boosted nationalist sentiment, especially in the western borderlands, the Baltic and the Caucasus, regions which bore the brunt of foreign occupation and forced evacuation. Footnote 62. The idea that the war was intended to promote national self-determination began to circulate well before Woodrow Wilson articulated his 14 points in January 1918. Germany, for example, promising Poland independence in the event of victory by the Central Powers. Footnote 63. Nationalism, however, was still unevenly developed across the empire, and the problems of giving it effective political articulation became apparent once the February Revolution offered the promise of democratic government. Initially, most nationalist groups pressed for varying degrees of autonomy within a free Russia. Demands ranged from relatively modest ones relating to schooling or religious services in native languages, to more ambitious ones 
for extensive decentralization of powers. The typical goal was encapsulated in the slogan by the Ukrainian National Council, known as the Rada, a coalition dominated by liberals and moderate socialists. Long live autonomous Ukraine in a federated Russia. Only in Poland and Finland did movements emerge that demanded complete separation from the empire. Both the liberal politicians of the provisional government and the Soviet executive committee fatally underestimated the revolutionary potential of nationalism, content to assume that the abrogation of all discriminatory laws would be enough to assuage nationalist opinion. With approximately 22% of the empire's population, Ukraine was, by far, the largest minority area, and its resources of grain, coal, and iron, as well as its strategic position, made it of paramount importance to the government in Petrograd. Footnote 64. Initially, the provisional government resisted the Rada's demands for a degree of administrative devolution, and for Ukrainian military units, fearing that Ukrainian nationalism was being exploited by Germany. The consequence was that the Rada, in a bid to stay in touch with the escalating radicalism of soldiers and peasants, stepped up its demands for autonomy, so that by July it had pronounced itself to be the sole supreme organ of revolutionary democracy in Ukraine. The effectiveness of the Rada was however, limited by the fact that most Ukrainian speakers were peasants, while nearly a quarter of the population were Russian speakers, Jews, or Poles, and concentrated in the cities. The landowning class mainly comprised Russians and Poles, the latter in the provinces west of the Dnieper, and the administration was dominated by Russians. So the socio-economic grievances of the Ukrainian peasantry acquired an ethnic coloration. In addition, in right bank, Ukraine Jews controlled much petty trade and small industry and were the peasantry's main creditors. This situation compelled the middle class socialists and liberals who dominated the Rada to take a radical stance on the land question, promising the peasants that the rich black earth of the region belonged to them alone. However, in eastern Ukraine, in Kharkiv and other cities, and in the Donbass, there was a militant working class comprised of Russian and Russianized Ukrainians who supported Soviet power on a pan-Russian scale. In neighboring Belarusia, by contrast, with a population of only 4.5 million, nationalism was weakly developed. The Belarusian socialist Hromada, formed in 1903, was based on the small intelligentsia, and after February it was outflanked by the Jewish parties and by the all-Russian parties, notably the Bolsheviks, whose support was based on the garrisons stationed in this critical zone of military operations. Political developments were determined largely by the shifting battlefront that ran through the region, and war-weary Russian soldiers took the lead in forming Soviets. Peasants made up a majority of the population, and as in Ukraine, the towns were populated by Jews, Russians, and Poles. Footnote 65. Nearly three-quarters of the rural population were illiterate, and spoke up to 20 different dialects. Indeed, into the 20th century, as the Belarusian language lacked a standardized grammar, 
As in Ukraine, the peasantry was primarily concerned to see a division of the large estates that existed in the region. Finland had enjoyed unprecedented autonomy after its annexation in 1809, and following the February Revolution, all political parties campaigned for complete independence. Footnote 66. The provisional government did its best to shelve the question, but there was little doubt that Finland was destined to secede in the same way as Poland had effectively done. In the event, Finland would descend into a civil war of notable savagery, especially considering that its territory had been largely spared the ravages of the First World War. At its root was a severe economic crisis. Finland's agriculture, paper and pulp, and metalworking industries had benefited from the war, but Russia's withdrawal from the conflict caused major economic problems. Serious shortages emerged, and the Finnish mark fell in real terms to 22% of its 1913 value. As in Russia, the workers' movement reacted fiercely to the supply situation and to escalating unemployment. By autumn, street fighting had broken out between armed detachments of workers, known as Red Guards, and civil militias, loosely backed by Germany, known as White Guards. On the 13th of November, a general strike was declared after conservatives blocked key political reforms, but the Social Democrats, having pushed through the reforms, balked at actually taking power. Talks with the Social Democrats having come to naught, a bourgeois government took office on the 4th of December, to the fury of the Red, to the fury of red Guards. In the Baltic region, the land-owning class was largely German, and periodic campaigns of Russification in the late 19th century had fostered a rigorous nationalist movement. Here, too, ethnicity tended to reinforce class sentiment. In the provinces that would become Latvia and Estonia, German landowners faced indigenous peasantries, but these were divided between a stratum of prosperous farmers and a landless proletariat. In Latvia especially, the latter was large and hated the grey barons, that is, wealthy Latvian farmers, almost as much as they did the German nobility. Both Latvia and Estonia had substantial urban middle classes and important centres of industry, especially Latvia, where a largely Latvian working class and urban lower middle class faced a commercial and industrial bourgeoisie that was Jewish, Russian, or Polish. The Social Democrats had long been a powerful political force in Latvia, having a base among workers and among landless peasants. Here, liberals and moderate socialists, who initially dominated the nationalist movement, lost ground rapidly to the Bolsheviks, who enjoyed exceptionally strong support in the working class. The famous Latvian riflemen, a militia formed in 1915 to resist German invasion, would go on to play a distinguished role in the Red Army. Estonia, by contrast, was much less industrialized, and the Social Democrats were correspondingly weaker. During 1917, the elected assembly, known as the Mapaev, clashed with the provisional government over the extent of the autonomy it should enjoy. Estonian Social Democrats backed demands for self-determination, 
but the Mapeyev soon found itself outflanked from the left by Soviets in Revel, Narva and Dorpat, where mainly Russian workers and soldiers put their weight behind the Bolsheviks and left SRs. Nationalism among the Muslim peoples had made some strides since 1905, but it remained weak in 1917. The February Revolution raised the issue of whether religion or ethnicity should be the basis of political organization, pitting the proponents of pan-Islamism, who advocated extraterrestrial cultural autonomy for all Muslims within a unitary Russian state, against those who wished to see different ethnic groups exercise political autonomy over a clearly defined territory. Overlapping this division was one between the reformist Jadids, who advocated the modernization of Islam, especially in education, language, and social reform, and the more conservative mullahs and notables who cleaved to the idea of an unchanging Islamic tradition, and opposed, for example, the resolution in favor of women's equality that was passed by the first all-Russian Muslim Congress in May. After February, Muslims were primarily concerned about promoting their religious and cultural identity, establishing control over education, and the right to form Muslim military units. Only gradually did demands for political autonomy surface. In the Kazakh steppes, where Islamic scholars, ulama, were weaker than in Turkestan proper, a significant nationalist party, the Alash Orda, did emerge. A moderate semi-socialist party, it was based on the Russian-educated sons of the Kazakh aristocracy. Initially, it confined its demands to limited autonomy and the use of the Kazakh language, but by December had moved towards claiming full-scale autonomy. In the course of 1917, the proponents of ethnic nationalism began to gain the upper hand over the advocates, mainly Tatar of pan-Islamic or pan-Turkic projects. Even so, the radicalization of nationalist movements among Muslim peoples was slow compared with other regions. Russian settlers, whose actions were at the root of the rebellion of 1916, dominated the Tashkent Soviet, the most powerful political body in Central Asia. Controlled by Bolsheviks and SRs, it attempted unsuccessfully to seize power as early as September. It would act both as the principal bearer of Soviet power in Central Asia and as the instrument through which Russian settlers sought to keep the native population in subjection. In the Caucasus, nationalism was well developed among the Georgians and Armenians, who had long histories as political entities and possessed their own Christian churches. Footnote 67. However, whereas Georgians and Azeris lived on compact territory, the Armenians were dispersed between Russia, Turkey, and Persia. After February, traumatized by the genocide, the moderate socialist Dashnak party gave its backing to the provisional government. In Georgia, the salient social conflicts were between Georgians and Tsarist officials, and between Georgian workers and peasants and the Armenian middle class. The nationalist intelligentsia used Marxism to forge a national movement based on the working class and, somewhat unusually, also on the peasantry. After February, 
Mensheviks dominated political life, seizing control of the Duma in Tbilisi from the Armenian middle classes and dominating the Soviet. The main challenge they faced was from the Russian-dominated garrison. In Azerbaijan, to the east, the largely Azeri peasantry were Shiite Muslims who lacked a national identity. Footnote 68. Educated Azeris were variously drawn to pan-Turkism, pan-Islamism, socialism, and liberalism. The towns were stratified, with Muslim workers at the bottom, Armenian and Russian workers in more skilled positions, and Christian and European capitalists in control of the oil industry. Baku, long a centre of militant socialism and a cosmopolitan city where social democrats and Dashnaks dominated revolutionary politics, became the bastion of Soviet power in the region. The reluctance of the provisional government to concede meaningful autonomy was partly motivated by fear that nationalist movements were a Trojan horse insinuated by Germany, a not unreasonable supposition if one looks at the record of the latter in the Baltic and Ukraine. At a deeper level, such reluctance stemmed from the emotional commitment to a unified Russian state, which was especially strong among the cadets. When, in September, Kerensky finally endorsed the principle of self-determination, quote, but only on such principles as the Constituent Assembly shall determine, end quote, it was too little and too late. If nationalism grew in importance in 1917, the greater salience of class identity at this time was never in doubt. Nationalist politicians were forced to take up the concerns of the masses, notably the land question and the eight-hour day. In general, however, workers were more responsive to class than to nationalist issues, whereas peasants, though concerned above all with the land and an end to the war, preferred parties that spoke to them in their own language and that defended local interests. Class, nation, and gender. A discourse of citizenship was put into circulation by the February Revolution, but it quickly ceded to a discourse of class, in some places as early as the April Crisis. The pamphlets and newspapers of the socialist parties addressed ordinary people in the language of class, and strikes and demonstrations, red flags, banners and images, the singing of revolutionary songs, the election of representatives, meetings in the workplace and on street corners, the passing of a resolution, the raising of funds for a political cause, all served to entrench this discourse so that ordinary folk began to see themselves and the world around them in class terms. The appeal of class politics cannot be seen simply as a reflection of socio-economic realities since Russia was not yet a fully developed class society. Certain social estates, such as those of the townspeople, craftsmen, and merchants, had been in decline since the late 19th century. Yet estates were still, arguably, more important in structuring social relations than the classes brought into being by industrial capitalism, if only because the vast majority of the population belonged to the peasant estate, and because the nobility maintained its privileged status up to 1917. Moreover, groups of critical importance to mass mobilization in 1917 
such as soldiers and the non-Russian nationalities, did not fit easily into a class-based schema. The success of the discourse of class derived less from its accuracy in describing social relations than from the fact that it played upon a deep-seated division in Russian political culture between them and us, upon a profound sense of the economic and cultural gulf between the nizi, that is, those at the bottom, and the verki, those at the top. The socialist parties articulated this deep social division in somewhat different class language. The Mensheviks talked in terms of revolutionary democracy, that is, a broad block of popular forces that stretched to include the intelligentsia. The SRs talked in terms of the toiling people. The Bolsheviks talked mainly in terms of the proletariat and poor peasantry although they too drew easily on ideas of the toiling people. One index of the pervasiveness of the discourse of class was the huge popularity of socialism. All kinds of groups pinned their colors to the socialist mast. The Orthodox Church Council, which finally convened in 1917, set up a special commission to root out Bolshevism in the church. Deaf people formed a socialist union of the deaf, the Journal of the Interdistrict Group expressed indignation at the fact that even the Yellow Boulevard Press now called itself non-party socialist. Footnote 69. In the Duma elections in Saratov in July, 82% of votes were cast for socialist parties of different kinds, and in the Constituent Assembly elections, 85% of the national vote went to socialist parties including their nationalist variants. Footnote 70. Millions still had only the vaguest idea about the ideological differences between the socialist parties, but were captivated by an idealized vision of socialist society. A typical pamphlet, entitled What is Socialism?, published in Minnesinsk in eastern Siberia, explained, quote, Need and hunger will disappear, and pleasures will be available to all equally. Thefts and robberies will cease. Instead of coercion and violence, the kingdom of freedom and brotherhood will commence. Footnote 71. This idea of socialism as the dawn of universal happiness resonated with the apocalyptic strain in Russian culture. The historian Mark Steinberg has called the language of class a flexible designation of otherness, a way of condemning the rich and powerful or anyone else perceived to be acting against the interests of the common people. Footnote 72. Class enemies were landowners, employers, officers, government officials, the police, and sometimes even priests, village elders, or foremen. It could be used against those who were believed to have profited from the war, for example, but also against those believed to have undermined the war effort. In Smolensk, where the Bolsheviks had only 80 out of 220 places in the Soviet by October, moderate socialists explained the collapse of the local economy as being due to bourgeois greed and incompetence. Footnote 73. The discourse of class could thus pick up and transmute the most diverse grievances, hopes, fears, and ideals of those Dostoevsky had called the injured and insulted. But it was, above all, the term 
bourgeois, a corrupted form of the foreign-sounding word bourgeois that was most readily used by the less politically conscious to blacken those of whom they disapproved. As one pamphleteer observed, quote, Soon it will be dangerous to put on a collar, tie, hat, or decent suit without being called bourgeois. End quote. Bourgeoisie was as much a moral as a sociological designation of otherness. According to another pamphlet, uh, quote, Bourgeoisie is a person who leads an egotistical, meaningless, and aimless life, unilluminated by the vivid and wonderful goals of any valuable or spiritual labor. End quote. Footnote 74. As this suggests, if the discourse of class could be suffused with idealism, it could also communicate hatred and threaten retribution. As a leaflet put out in June by the Free Association of Anarchists and Communists in Kiev roared, Down with the provisional government. Smash the bourgeoisie and the Jews. Footnote 75. The portrayal of enemies as vampires or vermin helped to legitimize the use of violence and terror. Footnote 76. Many ordinary people called on the new Bolshevik government to show no mercy towards the old ruling classes. Quote, there must be freedom only for the oppressed. For the exploiters, there can only be the stick. And only with the stick can we introduce justice in our land. End quote. Another correspondent proposed that the highest nobility, the landowners who own 100 desiatina, 146 hectares, of land, and the officials who served in the Okhrana, be sent to Solovki Monastery, once the monks have been removed. Quote, This filth should have been put in a safe place a long time ago, so that they can no longer poison worker-peasant Russia with their cursed breath. Thanks to the crowned blockheads and their retinue, they drank a lot of workers' blood. Be firm with these creatures. Show them no mercy. End quote. Footnote 77. The political orientation of the urban middle strata in 1917 is particularly interesting since they did not fit easily into the them and us framework. Footnote 78. In 1913, it is reckoned that the urban middle strata numbered about 12 million, 37% of the urban population, and 8% of the general population. But they were highly differentiated in terms of employment, ownership of property, level of education, and in relation to the state. Footnote 79. They included what might be called the old petty bourgeoisie, such as artisans and petty traders, and new strata, such as white-collar employees in public institutions, banks, industrial enterprises, and transportation. These new strata, known as the Slushashi, or service personnel, were loosely defined by the fact that they were employees whose work was not physical in character. Their upper layers overlapped with professional groups such as teachers, 195,000 in 1916, students in higher education, 127,000, and doctors, 33,000. Footnote 80. After February 1917, the Slus Hashi tended to decide with the labor movement as they had done in 1905 to 1907. They formed their own unions, sometimes in the face of hostility from blue-collar workers, as well as forming a few mixed unions with manual workers. 
In Siberia, out of 416 trade unions in July, 156 comprised white-collar employees and 40 comprised blue and white-collar workers. Footnote 81. In general, the degree of unionization among white-collar employees was high, but in politics they mainly oriented towards the moderate socialists. Nevertheless, their identities were increasingly articulated in terms of the discourse of class. The Petrograd Union of Foremen and Technicians declared, We have always regarded ourselves as an integral part of the proletariat. A view that would have been contested by the latter. Similarly, the Petrograd Council of Elders and Industrial Employees passed a resolution in August. Quote, Comrades, at this dread hour of political shifts and state financial crisis, we must rally around freedom's red flag and stand up for the toilers' freedom and rights. End quote. Footnote 82. Doorkeepers and yard sweepers refused any longer to be called servants, insisting they were part of the working people. Many of the intelligentsia also sought to align themselves with the working people, albeit more reservedly. There were 50 organizations affiliated to the Moscow Soviet of Toiling Intelligentsia, but despite their name, they pledged to serve democracy and the public interest, rather than the proletariat. The more traditional sections of the petty bourgeoisie, while responding positively to the revolution, tended to keep their distance from socialism and class politics. The local associations of townspeople, for example, held an all-Russian Congress of Representatives in June and later demanded representation at the Democratic Conference, but their political orientation was either to right-wing socialist groups or to the cadets. They valued social stability, political compromise, law and order, and longed for a reformist solution to the crisis facing the country. They were for a constituent assembly, and sometimes for a homogenous socialist government, but after October they soon became disillusioned with party strife. Footnote 83. The salience of the discourse of class was in part linked to the absence of a nationalist politics that could be used by ordinary people. It was of this that the veteran liberal P.V. Struve was thinking when he stated in 1918 that the Russian Revolution Quote, was the first case in world history of the triumph of internationalism and the class idea over nationalism and the national idea. End quote. Yet, what was striking in 1917 was the failure of the radical right to mobilize a popular constituency on the scale it had in 1905 to 1907. It fell to the cadets to act as the principal exponents of nationalism, outlining a vision of the nation under siege. At the Conference of Public Figures, from which the public was excluded, Milyukov announced on the 8th of August that, quote, in the name of Russia's salvation and the rebirth of freedom, the government must immediately and decisively break with all servants of utopia, end quote, footnote 84. Yet it is facile to counterpose nation and class in a starkly antithetical fashion, for even the most enthusiastic exponents of the discourse of class did not entirely abjure the idea of the Russian nation, insofar as SR and Bolshevik propaganda often played on the double sense of the word narod in Russian, 
which means both nation and common people. These class-inflected conceptions construed the nation as one rooted in the toiling people, so even when the language used by ordinary people seemed to be at its most extravagantly divisive, one can often discern a sense of us, the true nation, the nation of the toiling people, versus them, the exploiting classes, the betrayers of the nation. The military horseshoe works condemned the state conference on the 13th of August in the following terms. Quote, we consider that horse trading with the bourgeoisie, which is bogged down in its narrow class interests, will not lead the country out of the cul-de-sac into which it has been driven by war and imperialism. Only the poorest classes of the population, led by the proletariat, can decisively suppress the greedy appetites of the plunderers of world capitalism and lead this worn-out country back onto a broad path to give peace, bread, freedom, and to liberate mankind from the bonds of capitalist slavery. End quote. Footnote 85. Here, beneath the shrill language of class, there is a subliminal identification with their worn-out country. Though the Bolsheviks resisted all concessions to patriotism, they were not able to ignore its force. Upon his return to Russia, Lenin had lauded fraternization between Russian and German soldiers, which had actually gone on from the winter of 1914 without the initiative of socialist parties. Yet faced by the charge that they were allowing the enemy to take over Russian land, the party quickly dropped this idea. When it looked as though Riga would fall to the Germans in August, the Bolsheviks hotly disclaimed the charge that they had allowed this to happen by demoralizing the army, claiming implausibly that it was a deliberate act by the generals, quote, who intend to betray the revolutionary Baltic fleet, the pride and glory of the Russian Revolution, and are preparing to surrender the vanguard of the revolution, Red Petrograd, end quote, footnote 86. Through 1917, they strenuously denied that they would conclude what a group of sick and injured Russian warriors described as a shameful and dishonorable peace with Germany, although they had little choice but to do so after October. Footnote 87. The identity of youth acquired considerable political purchase following the February Revolution, but it, too, was articulated through the discourse of class. As urbanization and education expanded, the period of adolescence had extended, and the distinctive youth subculture had begun to emerge in the cities. During the war, the numbers of young workers in the workforce rose, even as their working conditions deteriorated. After February, young workers, mainly male, hastened to join trade unions and political parties. In Petrograd, they pressed for an improvement in wages, a six-hour working day, representation in the factory committees, and the right to an education out of working hours. They also campaigned to have the right to vote, which was restricted to those over the age of 21. Out of these initiatives, a militant youth organization known as Labor and Light emerged, which had 50,000 members by summer. Its charter of 12th of July 1917 promised, quote, to develop the feeling of personal dignity and class consciousness 
that are precious to the working class, as youth creates its social organization and becomes enlightened and educated at the technical and professional level. End quote. It was a non-party body committed to the acquisition of culture and education by working class youth. Kripskaya, who made contact with it, contrasted it to the, quote, senior pupils of high schools who often came in a crowd to the Cheshinskia mansion and shouted abuse at the Bolsheviks, end quote. She noted the remarkable fact that the organization required its members to learn to sew. Quote, one lad, a Bolshevik, remarked, why should we all learn to sew? I can understand if it's a girl having to learn it, because otherwise she won't be able to sew a button on her husband's trousers when the time comes, but why should we all learn? This remark raised a storm of indignation. End quote. Footnote 88. As politics became more stridently partisan, a socialist union of working youth was formed in Petrograd, which soon stole a march upon labor and light. It defined its aim as the preparation of developed, educated fighters for socialism. At the sixth conference of the Bolshevik Party in August 1917, one-fifth of the delegates were under 21, and the median age was 29. This adoption of a militant class identity by working-class youth was often accompanied by a repudiation of the recreational side of youth culture. In Moscow, some members of the Third Youth International condemned those harmful elements in their midst who were organizing evenings of entertainment and dancing. Women's involvement in revolutionary politics was also configured through the lens of class. It was the demonstrations on International Women's Day by women workers and housewives demanding bread and an end to the war that sparked the events that led to the fall of the dynasty. On the 19th of March, 1917, feminists organized a big demonstration to demand the vote, which, to judge from photographs, was supported by lower-class women who wore kerchiefs, whereas middle-class women wore hats. Footnote 89. This, however, was a rare moment in 1917, when gender rather than class was the axis of organization. After a few weeks dithering, the provisional government passed a law granting women the right to vote. It also enacted legislation that allowed female lawyers to represent clients in court, women civil servants equal rights with men, and, following the introduction of co-education in high schools, women teachers equal rights with their male colleagues. In addition, the government introduced restrictions on night work for women and children. Footnote 90. These were significant achievements, the result of decades of campaigning by women's organizations. Yet, for all their achievement, the feminist movement, firmly labeled bourgeois in class discourse, went into decline. Indeed, some feminists signed up fully to the nationalist agenda of the liberals and right-wing socialists. Maria Pokrovskaya, founder of the Women's Progressive Party in 1905 and a doctor who worked with the poor, called on women to be guided by ideals and aspirations, not by coarse material incentives. And from this perspective, which played on the deep association in Russian culture of women with higher spiritual things, the woman soldier Maria Bachkorova formed the Women's Death Battalion in the summer of 1917 in a rearguard effort to reverse the disintegration of the army. Quote, Our mother Russia is perishing. 
I want women whose tears are pure crystal, whose souls are pure, whose impulses are lofty. With some women setting an example of self-sacrifice, your men will realize their duty at this grave hour. End quote. Footnote 91. Bajkorova carefully selected 300 women out of a couple of thousand volunteers, but the only combat they saw was in defending the Winter Palace against unruly Bolshevik soldiers and Red Guards. Incidentally, the pattern of relatively high female participation in military action would continue in the Red Army, where some 50,000 to 70,000 women enlisted by 1920. Some served as riflewomen, as commanders of armoured trains, even as machine gunners, although most served in medical units or did clerical work. The challenge to patriarchal gender roles was thus by no means insignificant. Footnote 92. Lower class women tended to act first as members of the subordinate classes and second as women. The most notable example of women acting as wives and mothers as well as workers came from the soldatki, or soldiers' wives. In 1917, there were around 14 million soldatki, and they had been involved in food riots, called, somewhat confusingly, pogroms in Russian, and demands for increases in family allowances during the war. Footnote 93. Not surprisingly, they took a very different attitude to the war from that of the aforementioned feminists. Quote, enough of this horrible bloodshed, which is utterly poisonous for working people. End quote. Women in Smolensk declared in May, footnote 94, despite relatively low levels of formal organization, the Petrograd Soviet did organize a national union of Soldatki in June, Soldatki made quite an impact on local politics, demanding that city treasuries raise allowances to compensate for soaring prices. Given the rather vocal and aggressive character of their protests, they tended to be portrayed in the press as a dark, unwomanly force motivated by greed rather than by quintessential female qualities. Female workers, including those in domestic service and in such service sectors as restaurants and laundries, threw themselves into the strike movement in 1917. Footnote 95. When the director of the Vyborg spinning mill in Petrograd explained that he was unable to afford a wage increase, women shoved him in a wheelbarrow and carted him to the canal bank, where, poised perilously on the edge, he shakily signed a piece of paper agreeing to a rise. Footnote 96. This, however, was not militancy that translated into formal, durable organization. Thanks to a small number of socialist women, mainly Bolsheviks, who worked around the newspaper Woman Worker, female factory workers, domestic servants, shop assistants, and waitresses were persuaded to join trade unions. These Bolshevik women opposed separate organization of women workers, warning that this would bring division into the ranks of the proletariat. The Textile Workers Union successfully recruited substantial numbers of female workers, but women proved reluctant to take up positions of leadership. This was partly a matter of time and domestic priorities, for they had a dual burden as wives and mothers as well as workers, partly a matter of lack of confidence, and partly a disposition to defer to men in the public sphere. Women workers' levels of literacy were lower than those of men. Also to blame were the leaders of labor and socialist organizations who were ever ready to criticize the backwardness, downtrodden position, and darkness of many of our sisters. 
but loath to do much about it. Footnote 97. In fact, the evidence suggests that when they felt their interests were at stake, women did show interest in politics. During the elections to the Constituent Assembly, 77% of women in the countryside participated in elections, compared with 70% of men, believing that this would secure their title to the land. Footnote 98. So far as leadership of the socialist parties was concerned, the position of women may actually have deteriorated following the February Revolution. Under Tsarism, women in the RSDLP were almost as likely as men to hold office in city-level organizations, though the same was not true of the SRs. This changed as men rushed to join the socialist parties in spring 1917, and as old leaders returned from exile. Footnote 99. The culture of the socialist left was male-dominated, despite the extraordinary aura that attached to certain revolutionary women, notably female terrorists in the populist and SR tradition, such as Vera Figner, Ekaterina Breshko-Breshkovskaya, and Maria Spiridonova. Spiridonova, in particular, commanded enormous admiration for the dignified way in which she had endured brutal treatment during the 11 years she was imprisoned for shooting a police official in 1906. In 1917, the central leaderships of all the socialist parties were overwhelmingly male. Among the members of the Council of People's Commissars, the government established by the Bolsheviks after the October seizure of power, only one woman, Alexandra Kolontai, was given a ministerial position as Commissar of Welfare. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week we'll be finishing off this chapter as we come to the end of 1917. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.